and welcome back to Hayden's Entertainment Hour. And I gotta say, it, it's been a while, hasn't it? It feels like it's been a while since I've sat down and talked about a movie. And, you know, the last movies that I talked about was with Brian, and that was, of course, Come Play and Freaky. And those were two of the last movies that I officially saw in theaters, and I was like, okay, you know what, nothing new is really coming out, so let's go back to the streaming service thing. Because uh, there have been a lot of streaming service movies I've missed as of late. I mean, I was far behind the curve on Devil all the time, and most people were watching it when I was still like, eh, I'm doing the Adam Sandler project for school. And then another movie that I missed, of course, was I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which got talked about forever, and I missed the mark on that one, and I need to go see that one. Uh, I also saw Mank came out not too recently, and everybody saw it and was talking about it and now they're moving past it and I'm like man I gotta play catch up here I gotta get my thoughts out on these movies because uh, like I said this year has not been great for movies obviously um, and the biggest bit of news is obviously now it seems like most streaming services and most companies are going to give you the option you can either watch the movie in theaters or watch it at home on some streaming service or just VOD and like I said with Brian when we were talking about the whole Disney initiative thing and like their whole marketing thing for like the new phase of the MCU and how they're gonna do movies and stuff I said it is going to kind of be refreshing to not always go to theaters to watch that really bad movie that just came out because now I can just watch it at home or forget about it or never see it, which sure might create an interesting dynamic of me missing out on like the worst movie that possibly came out this year and I want to experience how bad it was or something, but... I just feel like overall it is going to be nice having that option to go to theaters and see it or stay at home and watch the movie. Like, for example, uh, I'm really torn on what to do for Wonder Woman because I would love to see it on the big screen, but at the same time, like, I don't know necessarily if I want to, like, leave my house during the Christmas season to go watch it or, like, leave it on the 26th of December or something to go watch it because I'm just not so sure that, like, it's going to be the same experience again, if that makes sense. Because when I saw Endgame, it was a packed theater. And that experience of watching all of these Marvel fans just get really giddy, they're all excited seeing their favorite superheroes on screen, that was an awesome experience to feel that with the audience. But now, we're in a coronavirus year, which is slowly going away because, thank goodness, the vaccine is done. Um, But it's going to be like half-full theaters, or probably theaters that won't even be full, if I'm honest. And watching a superhero movie without a full theater, not going to lie, it can be a really boring experience. Like, we saw New Mutants with nobody in the theater, and we just hated it. We were bored half the time. We checked our phones the majority of it more than we did pay attention to the movie it seemed like and then when I saw it a second time with the other Brian I I tried to pay attention to it but the movie just was not interesting and so I don't know what I'm gonna do with like superhero movies moving forward because it feels like now with that option to watch them at home more people won't go to theaters to watch them anymore and that might kill the movie theater experience and well, we'll just have to see what happens, I guess. Now, granted, the one benefit that I know a lot of people will point out is, well, at least independent films will now be seen without, you know, stupid teenage kids that walk in and are on their phone the entire time, which I agree, yeah, I would rather see independent films in theaters, but I do kind of think this is going to hurt the market more because superhero movies do have the revenue that drives those theater chains, and that's not debatable. I know a lot of people would say, well, the independent films do too, but if you really look at it, the billion-dollar to million-dollar superhero films are the ones that make the revenue for those theaters. They're the ones that make the most money that keep the theater running. If theaters ran on indie film cash, they would struggle for a little bit because not everybody sees indie films. They're too weird for most people. I love indie films more than superhero films, obviously, but I do understand the whole argument about how, like, this is going to change the experience and how superhero movies kind of run the industry, and not wrong. I'm not going to disagree with that. But anyways, um, I kind of rambled on with the intro here. What movies are we talking about today? Well, the four movies that I'm going to be talking about today that I think a lot of you guys will have some interest on my thoughts on are Annabellum, The Devil All the Time, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and Mank. What I have to say about each of these movies is that I have a mixed set of opinions on each of them, and I feel like a lot of you guys are going to have to just kind of sit back and let me give you my thoughts on each of them and just kind of like tell you why this is such a mixed podcast and why I feel like at least two of these films bring a lot to the table and the other two are just... I don't know if I'd ever watch them again, to be honest. So, thank you guys for listening to this intro. We shall now move into the first movie, which is Antebellum. Antebellum. What can I say about this movie that hasn't already been said? I don't know if I can. I mean, literally everything I'm going to talk about in this review you could read on Letterboxd or go watch another YouTube video on, because this movie's not good. And obviously, right off the bat, I don't think that's going to hurt most people's feelings, because... You know, most of them maybe expected it a little bit. Now, I will admit, probably most general audience people, or most people that like Jordan Peele, were probably like, oh, I think this movie looks good, because the title card that showed in the trailer said, from the producers that made Get Out, and Us. 
But can we step back and read that again? From the producers that made Get Out and Us. The producers. Not the director, not the writer, not the guy that literally constructed the movie. Just the, the producers that probably did some production design stuff. Probably gave some actors some water and stuff like that. And had no clue how to write a movie the way Jordan Peele did. And I think that a lot of people like me even that got excited for this movie and then eventually died off when they saw the reviews for it had the same consensus of like, oh, well, it's from that same company, so it's going to be an equal or just as good movie. No, that should not be the mindset for anybody. I will admit my interest died off for it even before the movie came out in the reviews because I was just like, I, I don't like that they're just homing in from the producers of these two movies because that just sets you up for disappointment. Now, I know Brian was really excited for it, and even after it came out, him and I were talking about, yeah, we might watch it at some point, but we never did, obviously. And then I went and saw it, and I don't think Brian has seen it. And it's just kind of like, well, most people's interest in the movie died because it's really not that good. And I don't feel like I'm insulting anybody by saying that because I would say that this movie is insulting in a lot of ways to black people in general, but also just insulting as a movie that's trying to be about empowerment, but also looking at back ways of empowering black society and giving black representation in film. So let's talk for a little bit about Annabellum, but I want to start with a user review that I feel like kind of summarizes my thoughts on the movie and would summarize most people's. And it's from the uh, Letterboxd user Angelica Jade Bastine. Sorry if I pronounced the last name wrong. Uh, this is their review of Annabellum, though. I am tired. I am tired of pop culture artifacts that render black people as merely black bodies unto which the sins of this ragged country are violently mapped. I am tired of suffering being the primary lens which we understand black identity. I am tired of being so hungry for black joy and black representation that scraps feel like a meal. I am tired of films about slavery refusing to acknowledge the inferior lives of black women even as their beings become tools for filmmakers to explore the horrors of the enslaved. I am tired of thin characterization and milquetoast social messaging being the kind of representation black folks received. I am tired of films like Annabellum. First off, agree with this letterbox review entirely. I'm tired of films like Annabellum that literally the only way they feel like they can do black representation well is, well, we gotta throw it back to slavery. You don't think people are tired of that? You don't think they're tired of going back to the slave era and going, oh, look, another film about slavery. They want films that empower them. Why do you think most critics really enjoy films like Blind Spotting? or most Spike Lee films like Black Klansmen or The Five Bloods or yeah, the films like The Hate You Give even. Like, why do you think more people wanna go out and watch movies like that than they do these movies about, oh, look at how black people were portrayed back in the slave era and whatnot. Look at what they suffered through and stuff because they're tired of that being the only way they can be represented. They want films like Blind Spotting. They want films like The Hate You Give. They want films that empower them. They don't want films that are like Annabellum where the only way they get represented is them being tortured on screen and basically the movie getting turned into a Civil War torture porn the entire runtime. Because that's all Annabellum is in a nutshell. It's Civil War torture porn and that seems to be the only messaging the movie has is slavery bad and racism is bad. That's it. And it doesn't seem to have any other cl uh, clever social commentary outside of that. You know how Get Out has better clever social commentary. You know how Us even has better social commentary. And like Jordan Peele actually explores race a little bit and about why white people are kind of messed up and why we need to stop looking at society so backwards. Annabellum doesn't even acknowledge that. It just continues with this narrative of, look at these racists. Oh, they're really racist. And that's the only characterization you get for those racists. It's not like Get Out, where you want to understand the father a lot more and the mother in the movie and even the daughter. And when you figure out what their true motivations are in the movie, you're horrified that people think like this. Or even Us, where you want to understand the tethered and their motivations and stuff. And once you figure it out, you're horrified by the way they look at the world. And then you go to this movie where it's just like, oh, the racists just don't like black people. And that's all the characterization they get. And it just sucks because there is no deeper layers of characterization there. There is no deeper looks at these people internally and how evil they are. It's just, oh, they're one-dimensional racists that are racist. And that's every racist character in this movie or every white person in this movie is just a racist. And you can write bad white characters like Jordan Peele will, but this movie has no way of writing them in a way in which you hate them. Because every time a racist character died in this movie, I was like, 
I don't care. I didn't get to know them deeper or why they were so evil or even like why I should care about these characters in any way, shape or form. Because honestly, I don't. I don't care about any of the racist characters that die in this movie. Like, it's not like Get Out where you're like really excited and cheerful when the family finally dies at the ending when Daniel Kaluuya murks all of them. It's not like that kind of feeling. You're just sitting there bored because you don't understand these racists and their motivation. You don't even understand why we're supposed to hate these people because all they are are one-dimensional racists, and I get it, you're supposed to hate racists, but like, again, they have no characterization behind them. And that's another big issue with the movie is characterization. The only characterization we get for any character in the movie is that Janelle Monet might be the only one that actually has a slim characterization arc. And it's because she is obviously this doctor that is writing books about empowering black culture and black representation and stuff. And this group of racists are keeping tabs on her because they don't like that she's spreading good news. And so obviously they kidnap her at one point in the movie. And like, that's about the only characterization we get for Janelle Monet. At the ending, it's all kind of thrown out the window and you don't really learn a whole lot about her. It just becomes, again, like I said, civil war torture porn. And that's about it. Characterization is piss poor in this movie. I would not watch this movie again just for the sole reason that I cannot get behind a single character in this movie. Another thing too that really sucks about the movie is the fact that it just feels like this is so Jordan Peele wannabe. Like it's shot like a Jordan Peele movie, it's edited like a Jordan Peele movie, but it doesn't have the same feeling as a Jordan Peele movie. It feels like this was a fanboy that wanted to make a Jordan Peele movie and was like, I'm gonna copy everything he does in his movie and make it somehow worse. Because again, even dialogue in this movie is not clever or great in any way, shape or form. It's just like a lot of filler dialogue of racist saying racist things. Or, you know, they'll be like, okay, we gotta run over to here, we gotta escape, and then the Civil War torture porn happens, and that's about it. Like, there's no clever dialogue that delivers any clever social commentary. It's not like Get Out, where Daniel Kaluuya is strapped to the chair, and he's talking back and forth with the guy that wants his brain, and obviously the whole transfer is gonna happen, or even when he stands there with the family, and the family talks with him and stuff. Like, you don't get a moment like that in this movie ever, because it constantly is just like, well, look at how bad slavery was, and that's it. That's all it literally does to make the movie somehow empowering, in quotations. And like, I, I feel like that's really insulting. Another thing about the movie too, that really made me mad and really frustrated because this is just the dumbest twist I have ever seen, is that it's not even really a science fiction film the way that the trailers kind of made it look because when me and Brian watched it, it kind of looked like it was going to be like there were rifts in the world or something where like black people were accidentally getting sent back in time to this slave era and you wanted to figure out why this is happening or how it's happening and stuff. No, the twist in the movie is this racist cult is just kidnapping black people in modern day and taking them to this civil war reenactment site and living out a civil war fantasy. I kid you not, that is the plot twist of the movie, and it is about as dumb as it comes. And it just raises more questions than it answers them, because it doesn't even answer these questions. Why do these racists want to live in a confederacy? Why do they want to live in like an 1800s era? Why are they picking this Civil War reenactment site? How has nobody come across this group? Because Civil War reenactment sites still get active tourists that visits. How do they balance a day-to-day -day job and also this fantasy Civil War lifestyle? How have the phone companies or FBI or any police authorities never come across this place and been like, hey, what the heck is going on here? How has nobody found out about this place? How has nobody investigated this area? Just overall, how does this area make any sense? You would almost think like, are they renting the area and just keeping it under tabs? Like it just makes no sense whatsoever. And it just frustrates you. And even at the ending when Janelle Monet is running out and all the cop cars pull up and all the tourists are right there, I'm like, how did none of these people accidentally stumble back there and see what's going on? It doesn't make any sense. It literally makes zero sense for the plot twist. And it, it's just frustrating. And that's my biggest thing with Annabellum is the movie is frustrating. With no clever social commentary, with no good characterization, with everything copycatting Jordan Peele, and just the dumbest plot twists in the world, how can I like this movie? How can I think that this is a good movie? All the racists are one-dimensional racists and you don't understand their motivations and why we should hate them more. Janelle Monae gets a sliver of characterization in the second half, uh, second half of the movie and then it's thrown out the window in the third act. And it's just like, what is wrong with this movie? Everything, almost everything. But I do have to give it props because Janelle Monae gave a good performance. Most everybody else gave a good performance in the movie. I will admit, even though the cinematography and editing does basically copy and paste Jordan Peele, it does at least still feel like a competent uh, made movie filmmaking wise. But other than that, I can't say anything clever or even fun about Antebellum that would probably be empowering in any way, shape or form because this movie is not empowering. 
I don't know what more to say besides 3 out of 10. It might make the worst of the year list, honestly, because I was just so frustrated with this movie. So, what have we learned, boys and girls? If you're in movie theaters and you see the title card come, at, uh, come up that says, From the Producers of Get Out and Us, probably want to go into that movie looking at it glass half full, because it's not going to be what you want. But anyways, I've ranted about Antebellum too long. We shall now move into The Devil All the Time. The Devil All the Time is the brand new Antonio Campos movie to hit Netflix as an original film. It came out in September, everybody saw it except me, and I'm late to the party on this one I already know. But the story is about a boy named uh, Arvin that's played by Tom Holland, and he has a troubled childhood which has led him to live with his grandparents and his stepsister Lorena. And of course this new preacher moves into town played by Robert Pattinson that is somewhat manipulative and taking advantage of Lorena, and of course Tom Holland has to make rough decisions that not only help his family along the way, but also betters a future for himself even if the decisions that he makes are a little rash. So, the one thing that I have to say about The Devil all the time that I think I don't understand but a lot of people are saying is that they don't think it's a good movie. They either think that it's mediocre or that they just think that it's not worth their time to rewatch again, but I honestly don't get that consensus because after watching The Devil all the time, I like it. I think it's a good movie. I, I don't understand all of the criticisms behind it, really. I can understand some of them, which I will get into here, but I, I guess, in a way, I don't really understand why so many people don't like it as much. Maybe they'd have to kind of tell me a little bit more. I read some of their letterbox reviews, and they would, like, talk about one little detail that I wish they would have gone further into, so I don't know. I'd have to sit down with somebody to talk about it, but I think The Devil All the Time is a good movie. I don't really understand the criticism that it's too bleak. In fact, I think the movie kind of serves a purpose in how bleak it can be at times, but I guess that's just me. That's my opinion. This is me viewing it through a different lens. But I feel like The Devil All the Time does a good job in its three-act structure because, first off, right off the bat, the first act of the movie is very good at setting up this traumatic past for Lorena and Arvin in the movie because when Lorena was introduced as the other baby plotline in the movie, I honestly thought it was going to go nowhere, and honestly, I thought that it was going to be like lazily tied into the third act later and would really not have a satisfying payoff, but the first act does a very good job juggling these two different lifestyles that are going on in these two different upbringings because Lorena comes from a family and a mother that mar married this religious fanatic who is somebody that constantly feels like he has to prove himself to God, almost like a religious cultist and she is a young uh, infant baby of course when this happens but the religious fanatic father gets it in his head that God wants him to commit a sacrifice that will bring him back and resurrect him and so he takes of course Lorena's mother out into the woods and stabs her in the neck with a screwdriver and then is like okay God resurrect her of course it doesn't happen he freaks out and is murdered later on and is left orphaned with the grandparents of Arvin whereas the other upbringing we get in the movie is pretty straightforward pretty normal life for Arvin his dad is Bill Skarsgård that came back from war he fell out of love with God because he saw this man get crucified on a cross, but after he gets married and has Arvin, he gets this kick to pray again, and he starts feeling a little bit of a uh, connection with God, but he's like a normal Christian man throughout the movie, but then his faith is tested once his wife gets cancer, and so he starts to do things that a religious fanatic would do. So, for example, he murders Arvin's dog and strings it up on a cross and acts like this will bring God back and bring in, uh, of course, the healing power to save his wife. When it doesn't happen, he slits his wrist and dies. So I would say the movie does a very good job showing the two upbringings these characters come from because Arvin's father has anger issues and he's very quick to his temper and will act more with his fists and when we see a grown-up Arvin we see that happen in the movie if he can't solve a situation with his mind or talking his way out of it he just goes to his fists he beats people up there's even a shot that is just the same as a scene that happened earlier in the movie where Bill Skarsgård gets out of the car punches a bunch of rednecks gets back in and cleans the blood off his knuckles and Arvin does the exact same thing with some school bullies picking on Lorena whereas Lorena is falling in the footsteps of her mother all these years later where she's falling in love with this religious fanatic played by Robert Pattinson and is being manipulated by him. So both of their characterization really follows the sins of the past but the only difference is Arvin steers away from that path. He wants to make a whole new life for himself and he doesn't want to get into the temptations and evils that his father had. And so I think that was kind of brilliant in a way setting up the first act to show the type of characterization that would feed in from these parent characters onto of course Arvin and Lorena. Now I gotta say the first act can be messy to some people like I've heard the criticism that that Bill Skarsgård and that entire plotline doesn't really matter. It just more or less is like, oh, here's how Arvin got orphaned. But I feel like it serves a purpose. It's supposed to kind of make you feel like dirty a little bit about what happened to his parents. And of course that his dad took the wrong way of handling losing his uh, wife. But I completely understand the criticism behind that if you want to make that argument, I guess. But to me, it, it didn't feel like it was a big issue in the movie. But I got to say, once the second act comes around, this is where I struggled a little bit with the movie. And I feel like this is going to be where most people kind of lie in with my criticism here 
When Robert Pattinson gets introduced, it's not necessarily that he's giving a bad performance, but there's just something off about the accent. I really don't like the accent. It feels at times like it's a little too hammy for me, or it just feels otherworldly, or it just feels like somebody putting on a character, and I didn't really like that it took me out of the movie. Not only that, but the characterization we get for him is not really a whole lot. Like, we get it, he's a scumbag completely. He's using his preacher powers to manipulate and have sex with these girls, and then say God doesn't love them, which causes them to kill themselves. And I think that's really messed up, but we don't get much characterization outside of that. We don't really learn a whole lot about the guy's past. We don't really learn about his dark intentions that much. And that was kind of an issue for me. And that started to become an issue because that plot line is going on where Arvin wants revenge on this preacher. And then we cut to Jason Isaac's subplot where him and his wife have been kidnapping hitchhikers, basically taking them out to picnics. They have a photo shoot with Jason Isaac's wife. Then of course, when they get ready to have sex with them, Jason Isaac shoots them and photographs them before they die and then uses their corpse as a model with his wife. And while that plotline's going on and it does come back at the ending, you're just for the longest time going, why are we cutting to this? Because it's kind of out of nowhere at times, I will admit. It just feels like, oh, we gotta drop in and check in on Jason Isaacs when the main plotline of Arvin we should be caring about more. Uh, and it just didn't really fit with me. But the biggest plotline that I didn't like in the movie was actually Sebastian Stan's. And I'm gonna make the argument here, if you cut out Sebastian Stan's plotline, really wouldn't make a difference. Because I get it, there's like this whole campaign thing that's going on, he's trying to uphold a reputation, and he knows that his sister and Jason Isaacs are doing these horrible deeds, but he kind of keeps it under wraps, but honestly, if you cut out his plotline and he just showed up at the ending as the really angry police officer that wanted revenge for the death of his sister, I probably would have been okay with that. I just felt like his plotline went nowhere and was not really that satisfying, but I will admit, the second act is where the narrative cohesively kind of goes downhill for me. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because it does pick up in the third act, but just like, it makes some decisions I don't agree with. Like, for example, juggling these three different plot lines when one of them doesn't really matter and the other one you just get the point through the one scene they already had earlier where they murdered the guy. I honestly don't get why we have to have another scene that shows that and then another scene that shows her trying to get away from Jason Isaacs. Like, we get that point, but the characterization for them isn't really a whole lot. Like, in fact, I would say that's kind of one of my biggest issues is that the other plot lines compared to the Arvin one does not really have a whole lot of characterization. And it kind of took me out of the movie for a little bit, but luckily when the third act picks up and Arvin finally veers off course and wants to make a better life for his family and himself, and of course murders Robert Pattinson, murders Jason Isaacs and his wife, and then murders Sebastian Stan, you completely understand and it's justified because he's getting out of this horrible town that of course had horrible deeds that happened to his father and had horrible deeds that happened to his sister-in-law uh, Lorena and so you completely understand why he does these things but it just was kind of frustrating for them to juggle that second act that I felt was a little messy and then cut to this third act that was completely satisfying. Now I think some more positives because I don't want to continue to stay in the negatives that I think Tom Holland's giving a career best performance. Yeah, sometimes the Spider-Man regular, you know, human boy accent comes out a little bit, but I will admit his accent, like the southern draw of it, did carry consistently for me, and I felt like he just put a lot of passion into his character because, again, he doesn't want to be a complete mirror image of his father. Somebody that has violent tendencies, gets mad at God, and just, he overall wants to make something of himself and not follow in the footsteps of his father. And I thought that was honestly really brilliant to see him kind of verge off towards the ending. I also felt like the performances from the rest of the cast was good. Like I said, Pattinson was a little shaky for me. Sebastian Stan's good. Jason Isaacs is good. Uh, all the female characters were very good. I just felt like there were good performances. And also the score. My goodness, I love the darkness of the score, and I feel like it adds a lot to the movie. And I will admit, that was one thing that I thought was really going to take me out of it, was the score in the movie, because sometimes the score can either make or break it, but no, I really like the score. Cinematography is very good, uh, I think stylistically this movie is shot very well, and overall, I think you kind of get the theme of the message uh, present as the movie goes on, which is something you have to carry over, but I will admit, the voiceover narration was not for me, and that was an issue that I had with like a movie like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where the narrator would just pop up at random times, and I know that's like a Tarantino staple most people tell me but like I just didn't like it here I know that a lot of people would argue that it serves a purpose but like I didn't like the narrator choice I would have rathered if the movie just kind of let it play out and let these characters say what or and just let these characters think and we could tell through like their emotional acting what they were thinking but then the narrator has to come in and go Arvin is thinking about this right now and he was really angry at this character and I'm like I don't need to know that I can tell through little Tom Holland's performance that I know for a fact that's the way he's feeling and that was kind of frustrating but 
Overall, I would say The Devil All the Time is still a good movie. Again, like I said, I don't really get the criticisms behind this movie, and I guess I don't see why it's mediocre. Somebody can change my mind on it, of course, but I thought this was a good movie. I definitely would revisit it again. It's not too long, it's not too short. I feel like it's got the perfect little runtime, and I was invested the entire time, even if the second act did take me out sometimes. Like I said, if you cut out the Sebastian Stan plotline, if the characterization was a little bit better in the second act, and it didn't feel like it was focusing way too much less, or way too much more on the other subplots than it did trying to balance the main subplot of Arvin and the Preacher, I probably would have liked it a little bit more in the second act. And yeah, Pattinson's performance ain't great. I, I do like it in a lot of ways, it's just the accent threw me out and it felt like a character. But overall, I think I'm still gonna give The Devil All the Time a 7 out of 10. I think it's a good movie. I, I think some people maybe need to watch it a second time just to kind of solidify their opinion a little bit, but uh, this could make the best of the year list. I don't know. I, I felt like it was a good movie. I may get shot for this, but I just overall, I like this movie, and you can hate me for it if you want. Well, thank you guys for listening. We shall now move into Charlie Kaufman's new film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. So I just saw the movie I'm Thinking of Ending Things, written and directed by Charlie Kaufman, and I gotta say, this is a movie that really got me on my feels. It made me think, it really got me existential at times, it, it just overall was a really great thinking piece, because one thing that obviously has been really disappointing about 2020 is that there hasn't really been any movie that's stuck with me that much, there hasn't been a movie that's just really wowed me, or just made me go, holy crap, I want to rewatch this over and over again, now, there's been the occasional few that have come out, like, obviously, I would watch something like Tenet again, because obviously I just like Chris, uh, Christopher Nolan films, uh, Bill and Ted was a fine enough comedy that I could watch it twice, The Five Bloods was a good thinking piece that I could watch twice, obviously, but like, there just really hasn't been a whole lot so it was finally refreshing for this movie to come out and for me to watch it and go, yeah, I gotta watch that again to understand it better, because I did see this movie twice, because I think if you watch it the first time, you're not gonna understand all of the ideas it's conveying and everything the movie is trying to say. So this is definitely like most Charlie Kaufman films. Watch it two to three times, you'll get an idea of what the movie's about, you'll get all the ideas it's trying to convey across, and overall, I thought this was a fantastic movie. Uh, I don't know if I'd say it's the best movie I've seen this year. Obviously, I can make an argument at the end of the year this might be my favorite movie, but I'm just not so sure yet. I, I would probably have to sit on this one a little while because it is fresh because there are some issues with it, but I'll get to that later because I want to give my full analysis of the movie. So first off, one thing that I got to say is that I already know this movie is not for most general audience people because I have read like all of, or I've read some letterbox reviews, I've read some Metacritic reviews, and it's like, this is pretentious. This is like what some pretentious college kid, uh, college kid makes as soon as he gets out. This was a boring movie. People just talked and nothing happened. And you know, I love those reviews that just say it was boring. All they did was talk and nothing happened because that just means they didn't pay attention to the dialogue and they didn't pay attention to what the movie was saying and trying to convey. And I just love those reviews because they're dumb. They're the type of people that watch Transformers over and over again and go, wow, it was awesome that Bumblebee blew that thing up, even though those movies have almost nothing character-wise or story-wise that even makes them interesting. So I will say this about I'm Thinking of Ending Things. It's a movie that's definitely going to be for a certain audience. And I think that I kind of respect movies that are made like that. I kind of respect the general audience people that won't like it because obviously they have their own set of movies that are made for them. They like their Marvel movies and their superhero stuff, whereas this is for people that like filmmaking and like film in general, so this is for something like me, of course. But anyways, I'm thinking of ending things. I'm just going to say from here on out, spoiler alert, because I'm going to be breaking, it down, uh, breaking down this movie entirely and going through spoiler sections of it, obviously. And just overall, uh, if you haven't seen it, skip to Mank if you want, come back after you've watched it. But let's get into I'm thinking of ending things. So I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, first off, the big twist of this movie is that it actually takes place in the mind of a janitor the entire time. But, as the title of the movie uh, indicates, I'm thinking of ending things, it is about this janitor wanting to kill himself and creating this fantasy so that way he does not have suicidal thoughts. So the entire movie is a fantasy that takes place in his mind that is slowly deteriorating as more su uh, suicidal thoughts enter his head. But, I think one thing that's interesting too, is that the movie, I'm thinking of ending things, also has that same line for the main female lead of the movie, who's thinking about ending the relationship in the movie with the guy that is actually just the younger janitor that is playing himself in his own mind. Which I think is kind of funny. Uh, so how you know that is the opening shot of the movie is the female lead on the street talking, she looks up, the old man's talking in the window, cuts back to her, then cuts back to where that old man was with Jesse Plemons standing in the place. So that's how you know that the old man is Jesse Plemons in his mind, and maybe a younger version of that old man. Well basically, all of the interactions in the movie, since it's taking place in his mind, are just the old man talking to himself philosophically, about life, about death, about the wrong decisions he's made. Basically, all the dialogue in the car is just discussing various things that the old man is thinking to himself, and he's obviously going back and forth. 
And anything that he comes across that he feels an attachment to in his life will show up in his memory. So, like, for example, there's this girl that's getting bullied in the hallway in the movie, and he passes by this girl, and she shows up at this ice cream place at one point in the movie, and the two girls, the two popular blonde girls that are bullying her, also show up at the ice cream place, too. And I found that interesting, and I'll get to that scene in a little bit, but, like, anything he comes across or feels an attachment to has an appearance in the movie. But when the movie starts off, it's basically starting with this girl just kind of thinking about, I don't want to be in a relationship with, the guy, uh, with this guy, I'm not so sure about him and he's talking about his family and making small talk and she's not really into him and she's just basically talking the entire trip about how much she really doesn't want to be in this relationship but when the two of them start talking about death or something really suicidal what the janitor will do, which I find interesting, is create a scenario to basically evade and go around that thought of suicide. So, for example, when they get to talking about suicide and ending things, they cut to the farmhouse that they were going to because they're going to visit the parents. And then, of course, when they're on their way home from the parents and they start talking about suicide again, Jesse Plemons veers off to this ice cream shop. And after they start talking about suicide again, they get right back on the road and they're back to square one. He's trying to prevent himself from thinking about suicide the entire movie, but the lingering thought is just almost there. And he's this girl up is almost a what if scenario what if I brought a girl home to my parents because the parents in the movie are probably like memories that he's had of his parents growing up and stuff they're embarrassing they don't understand the different things that she's studying and all of that and he's just embarrassed the entire time so in the movie for example how you know it's a fantasy and how you know it's his thoughts and his mind just saying whatever he wants is at the dinner table with Tony Collette and the father of course they're talking to the girl and she's studying a bunch of different things because he's going through different scenarios like what if this girl studied biology what if she studied film what if she he studied art and stuff and he wants to see the general ways that they would react to it and he just imagines his parents kind of having a cynical view of it saying it's not really a career they can't understand it and he gets mad and bursts out at them he bursts out at his parents but he probably didn't do that in real life so every time jesse plemons bursts out at them for him being embarrassed it does feel like it would happen in somebody's memory they just wouldn't go crazy on their old parents and i also find that interesting that the parents in the movie are just more or less memories that he has and every time the parents bring up something embarrassing the situation gets worse so he tries to adjust it to a different point in his life like when they're very old and they were having early signs of dementia and alzheimer's or another point when they're really young and she's talking to the girl about how like oh when he was a baby he used to do this with this blankie and all that just to kind of deflect and go around whereas the girl in the movie isn't still so sure about him and all that and she still kind of is lingering on wanting to end this relationship but another thing that i found really interesting is that jesse plemons does not want her to go to the basement he constantly says yeah you don't want to go down there blocks it off from her at one point and is just basically trying to keep her away from knowing who uh he truly is in the movie and at one point, of course, she goes down to the basement and finds a washer that is full of janitor uh, costumes and then goes over to the section of like all of these records and paintings and whatnot that have a bunch of trees on them that are the exact same paintings that she was showing off to the parents at the dinner table, implying that none of this was original. He didn't make any of this artwork himself. It was an attachment that he had with these different paintings and these records, and he made it up for her personality. And so obviously I thought that was kind of brilliant that the movie incorporated elements like that that really made you think. Every time Jesse Plemons interacts with his parents, he's trying to switch around their ages so that way he has a way of thinking about a fondness with them, but of course he just keeps embarrassing himself in front of her, and eventually when he thinks about his dead mother lingering into his mind, he eventually wants to leave the farmhouse, which I found really interesting. And I think that's something that just really kind of nailed in the head that he knew as the movie goes on he could never escape the reality of time moving forward. Because we'll come back to him in present day, he's mopping around stuff, he's watching a bunch of romantic movies and all that, or he'll just be going around doing his day-to-day -day job and he just looks so depressed and he's trying to go to this memory that is slowly deteriorating on him because he has bad thoughts he knows that time is eventually marching towards his end and it's just really sad to think about so obviously like after they leave the house like i said something happens that's interesting there is a straight 30 minute scene of them just talking dialogue wise on the way home they're just talking about what happened in the house he's talking about what happened with his parents and whatnot and then they get to the existentialism of like i've made a lot of bad choices in my life i don't know how i ended up being like a stupid janitor and she says what and he tries to deflect that into a new conversation and he even talks about how we try to escape our normal lives with fantasy thoughts because he talks about movies being a virus that we place in our heads to escape the bad realities of living which honestly i think was really great social commentary because i think that most of the movies that we see nowadays and most pop culture things 
that we go over, we just try to think about that instead. We try to think about what if we were in that scenario? What if we were in that grand adventure that the mo- that this movie is talking about? And we try to escape to that because we don't want to think about the cold, harsh reality that we're living in. And I thought that was kind of brilliant because the people that struggle with depression probably do want to think about what if I was like a great rocker or something? Or what if I was a great artist and all that? And the movie plays around with that, but reality just sinks in at one point and kind of throws that down for them like, well, you aren't this imaginary thing. And I find that so interesting. So, of course, when they start bringing up death again in the conversation, they veer off to that ice cream shop I was talking about with the girls from the high school. So the bully girl is sitting there, and she kind of represents the conscience that slowly knows he's going to kill himself at the end of the day, because he's talking about how she's fearful for the two of them, and of course the female lead doesn't understand why she's saying that, and the two blonde girls that were the two bullies in the hallway are slowly judging uh, Jesse Plemons for what he orders at the ice cream stand, which is why he has his back turned because of his own insecurities. The girls obviously represent his insecurities and his feeling of suicide and feeling like he is worthless and he's made nothing but bad decisions and I thought that was kind of brilliant that the movie plays around with that. Another thing too that I thought was really good is after that sequence plays out is finally when we get into the deterioration of his mind because they continue to drive, they park at this school obviously which is the actual school the janitor works at and Jesse Plemons is really embarrassed. He obviously thinks that somebody is going to watch him and this girl kiss and so obviously he goes into the school to investigate in which he doesn't return and the girl brings up a really interesting thought. She sits there in the car and she's like, you know what, what if I died of hypothermia? It would be a heck of a way to go and it again just brings in that thought of suicide which propels her to get out of the car, go into the school, and eventually runs into the janitor that is acting out the fantasy in her mind. And he slowly discovers after talking to her that this girl that he plucked out and made a fantasy with does not actually like him. In fact, she thinks that he's a creep and actually talks about what I would assume I could be interpreting this wrong is him staring at her in real life and her being creeped out and saying, I wish my boyfriend was there, this creepy old man was watching me and stuff. And he slowly realizes that in this fantasy, even his own thoughts of suicide are taking over and still making him feel worthless, letting him know that he's alone. And so obviously he lets her go and he's really torn up by it and you can tell. And then, of course, he cuts back to this, er, and it cuts back to this choreographed dance sequence with a younger version of him that obviously represents this young youthfulness of him wanting to have this fantasy girl. There's even a shot of the two of them getting ready to get married. But of course, what ends up happening is the janitor comes in and is trying to take her away, of course, almost implying the fact that his mind knows that this girl will never truly be his. At one point, of course, he gets stabbed and dies, and it kills off this fantasy version of him from the dance and almost a stage performance kind of sequence. And then the movie, of course, plays out with the old man. He's working after hours because obviously he doesn't want to go home and be alone, uh, be alone of course, and so finally when the movie uh, reaches its climax, he thinks about ending, him, or ending his life. He takes off all of his clothes once he's sitting in the car, and it's stages of hypothermia that cause him to do that, because I don't think a lot of people know this. When hypothermia sets in, you get disoriented, and you actually think you're too hot, which would explain why he's taking his clothes off in the freezing cold, and I would assume he died in the car, or the truck, whatever it was, and I want to assume that's where he died and the rest is a fantasy because when you actually are in a hypothermia induced coma you do experience delusions and fantasies which is where of course he sees the ice cream commercial that's present in uh, the beginning or in the middle way of the movie that Jesse Plemons sings and there's this animated pig that appears that's a pig with maggots that says well somebody has to be the pig full of maggots in this society obviously obviously implying that the old man is that pig with maggots that got the short end of the stick and he walks into the school with the pig and of course the movie then kind of transitions into Jesse Plemons, who is on stage receiving a Nobel Peace Prize and talking to all of these people that have old face makeup that represent the people that he's come across in his life and all of his fantasies, saying that you made my life worth it. You are something that has made my life worth it. He sings a song from Oklahoma, uh, sings a song from Oklahoma, obviously, that I think is a song about realizing that he's lonely and that this fantasy couldn't be there forever. And the movie ends with a fade to blue. And obviously a fade to blue implies that he died of hypothermia, and the last shot of course is of the car that's covered with snow, meaning that the old man probably died. Now I could be interpreting this all wrong, obviously there is subject to change for all this, but that was what I got from the movie most importantly after watching it, is all of these different interpretations with it, and I think it's kind of brilliant in a way. Because you don't see most movies that end with just this really bleak message of we can't live in fantasy forever, and that eventually there are going to be thoughts that catch up to us and we have to face reality, and that's where we make the decision, is life worth living? in the end or should we just give up? 
And I really hope most people choose that life is worth living. I hope that most of them don't choose suicide because again, suicide is a serious issue. And I don't want to ever hear my friends committing suicide. I don't want to ever hear about loved ones committing suicide. I don't want that to happen to them. And I've actually struggled with loved ones and friends that have dealt with suicide. So this movie was very hard hitting at the ending when I did of course interpret that the old man likely died of hypothermia because he was alone and he felt like there was nothing for him. And it was really sad to think about. Now again, this could be the wrong interpretations that I'm getting from this entire movie, but that was generally what I picked up. I think that it was kind of brilliant that the elements that he picked out, like the song from Oklahoma that sings, uh, that the girl sings on stage in the movie that he's listening to, that also plays on the radio when Jesse Plemons and the female lead are driving. Uh, it also is, it's a song that obviously can be interpreted as time is moving so forward, uh, so quickly because there's like a lyric that says, how can I ask a July sky about the August, uh, uh, afternoon or whatever, something like that. And so obviously the movie is very existential knowing that time is moving and that this fantasy land can't be there forever. I mean, heck, the janitor after the whole choreographed stage sequence with the younger version of him at the ending is mopping up his fantasy land. I mean, it's literally implied right there when he's mopping up the snow that he's putting away his fantasy land and accepting death. And I thought that was brilliant. Again, Charlie Kaufman just says, does just such a great job making movies like these. And overall, I was super impressed with this film. Now, what are my issues with it? Because I know a lot of people are saying, well, you sound so positive and so energized by it. And you sound like you really like the movie. Okay, so some of my issues with the movie, and this is very subjective, of course, because I get that some people could uh, be like, I don't feel that way at all, but I did get bored at times. And I know that I just made fun of people that said this movie was boring, but I will admit, there are some scenes that move too slow for me at times, and I will admit, it did keep, it did kind of take me out investment-wise somewhat, but whenever it would change to a new scenario or a new sequence of dialogue, I was really invested in that. I'd also say there were other moments in the movie that I kind of wish would have gone deeper down the rabbit hole a little bit. Like, for example, the pig at the the ending felt kind of short-lived I wanted to see him go on that more mystical journey where the pig kind of talks a little bit more with him about accepting death and accepting fate I also liked that the movie I, I also didn't like that the movie took a page out of a beautiful mind at the ending which I get it maybe and there is a movie or there is a copy of the movie a beautiful mind in Jesse Plemons old childhood bedroom which could be of course homage to that movie but I didn't like that it basically used the ending sequence or the ending scene of that movie I felt like it should have created its own thing but I get it it's playing homage to that movie because that movie also ends with like him him kind of accepting he knew that he had this schizophrenic thoughts in his head and now he knows that he's a great revered scientist and stuff and he just wants to retire and be with the people he loves thought that was great that the movie kind of tied it in here but i wish it did its own thing because it just reminded me so much of a beautiful mind and it kind of felt like a poor man's version of that i know that might be a little you know like oh how can you say that but i didn't like the ending pretty much with that i thought the song choice was good i understood what it meant but i just did not really care for that end scene but overall, I really liked this movie, and I would say for the most part, I would watch it again. Uh, probably, like I said, going to be in my top three best of the year list, and I think overall, uh, definitely is a movie everybody should check out. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10 for now. Could change to a 9, could change to a 7. I think it's going to stay an 8, though. Probably grow to a 9 after I watch it a third time, but I really like this movie. So thank you guys for listening to my analysis and review of I'm Thinking of Ending Things. We shall now move into the last movie on the podcast, which is Mank. Mank is David Fincher's brand new Netflix original movie, which is the story of American screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz, who's responsible for writing the screenplay for Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. The movie is taking place in a 1930s setting in which he is in his older years and has let alcoholism completely consume him while he's trying to spend 60 days writing this script that he maybe doesn't have a lot of investment in as he normally would. And so the story is obviously looking at him in his older years and is also looking at how his peers evaluated him at the time. It's basically a biopic looking into the man's older years but especially around the time of one of the biggest movies of all time. Yes, I know that's going to be a controversial thing to say because some people would be like, I don't even know what Citizen Kane is. How can you call it one of the biggest movies of all time? But to be honest, it's left such a legacy on the world and it's studied in almost every film class everywhere that, yeah, Citizen Kane is probably one of those movies that I'm not going to get in trouble for for saying is big. I mean, it's still referenced in pop culture today. A lot of people still talk about Orson Welles despite the guy being dead for so many years. I mean, there's just so many things to talk about with this that I could go on forever about Orson Welles and Citizen Kane as a movie. But I think that makes kind of unique unique movie because I like David Fincher as a director. One of my favorite directors working today, obviously. I have loved pretty much all of his films. I mean, he's 
made three of them I consider masterpieces. Obviously Fight Club, obviously Zodiac, and obviously The Social Network. I just love all of those movies to death. I just think David Fincher is a guy that doesn't really usually make a lot of misses. Like, there's only two in his entire filmography I didn't really like from start to finish. The first one is obviously Alien 3, and it's just because I didn't really think Alien 3 fit that well tonally, and I thought the story was kind of all over the place. And then it was also another thing with, like, the curious case of Benjamin Button being too boring, and I was just like, man, I can't get into this movie. I can't really get into the plot of it. It's just, it's too boring for me and too long. With Mank, I am kind of in an interesting dilemma here, because there have been some arguments made about the movie that it's just simply Oscar bait for the old white people at the Oscars to go back and reminisce about the 30s era of Hollywood and how great it was. And I can definitely see that argument here, but I don't like to think of David Fincher as a guy that shoots for Oscar bait. I like to think that he likes to tell an original story and he likes to make a movie that'll leave an impact with most people. And I feel like Mank is kind of a passion project, more or less, and that's kind of why it's appealing to that older audience, because obviously he has a huge respect for uh, Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, but I will admit, after watching this movie, I gotta say, I was bored. I did not really like this movie as much as I thought. And that's not to say it's a bad movie. It certainly is a good movie. I'm not gonna hark on it, because just... David Finch as a director is amazing, and the production design, the acting, the directing overall is what saves this movie in a lot of ways, and just, I really like this movie for that reason, the technical aspects. But story-wise, it's kind of lacking for me in some parts, and I'll get into that in a little bit. But I want to start positive here and just basically talk about what I liked about this movie. First off, the technical aspects of this movie to make it look like the 30s is mind-blowing. I definitely see an Oscar nomination for production design, for sound audio and sound mixing or whatever it is. I see it for directing. I just see it for costume design. Like, I, I just see it for all those technical aspects right there, especially cinematography, because they shot the movie on AK and slowly dissolved the film to make it look more like the 30s grainy era and stuff so you'll see the pops of course in the frame and stuff the big black dots the small dissolves and whatnot just overall it looks gorgeous in the cinematography and it makes you feel like you've been swept into a movie that was made in the 30s and it's just so good and the production design really fits the 30s era obviously got all of the old timey cars going around you've got all of the men, uh, men smoking cigars and whatnot they're talking about movies that were relevant at the time like they mentioned the wizard of oz they talk about leo the lion that worked at mgm they just they do so well thematically just making this movie feel like it's in the 30s, and I just love it in all of those regards. And another thing I like about the movie, too, is Amanda Seyfried and Gary Oldman, obviously the two standouts of the movie, and both their characters different in many different ways. What I like about Amanda Seyfried's character is that while she may have come across as a little ditzy to most people, she actually was one of the smarter characters in the movie. Not only is she not afraid to speak up for herself or say what's on her mind most of the time, but you just really like her as an actress and a character, and most importantly, when she starts bonding with Mank. And I gotta say, Gary Oldman and her will probably get Oscar nominations if I had to guess, and Gary Oldman's giving another great performance. I liked him a lot as Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour, and obviously here he's doing a great job kind of embracing an older Herman J. Mankiewicz. You can tell that alcoholism has really consumed him in his older years, and he really doesn't understand why the Hollywood landscape is changing for the worse instead of the better. He unravels that MGM and a bunch of other studio conglomerates are working for political campaigns that obviously are in the opposing party that they don't want to see win on the Democratic side, and Mank takes it to be one of those people that is like, you know what, I'm going to be the contrarian here. I think the Democrats are going to win. And obviously at the time, most people were like, what are you talking about? That's a foolish way of thinking. So of course, the people that work at MGM are making propaganda films to slam that one side of the political spectrum. And Mank really isn't on board with it. He thinks it's a dirty practice and it's not good for the film industry. While at the same time, cutting back to him writing Citizen Kane, where he bonds with his, where he bonds with the girls that are taking care of him, obviously. And he's trying to also balance a family life that he's not there for. But at the same time, he can't really resist drink, even even if it is put as a temptation in front of him, which just kind of shows the morality in his character and made it kind of relatable that the guy would really have a lot of temptations in his older years. And I think that's something that I really liked about the movie was in that aspect of the performance and the character of Mank, because overall, I really liked it in that aspect. Another thing too I will say is that it felt like the score was really in that 30s era setting. There were some jazz musician beats in there a little bit. There were some things about it that I really liked, like most of the moments of characters sitting down and talking, you could hear the music in the background and it even felt at times like L.A. Noir, if you've ever played the video game. I don't know why I always reference it, but it felt like that game a little bit when I was just like sitting there watching two people go back and forth in the car, and it was just a lot of fun to watch that. 
But now I want to get into complaints because obviously there have been a lot with this movie and some people obviously will probably disagree with me here on this comment, but I found the movie boring. It really took me a lot to get invested in certain scenes in this movie just simply because it's a lot of talking back and forth and there are three plot points that are getting juggled around in this movie. The first one is obviously Herman J. Mankiewicz trying to write the Citizen Kane screenplay with Orson Welles and his assistant breathing down his neck and him kind of, you know, just kind of being like, I'll write this whenever I got time. I kind of want to bond with these people that are taking care of me and at the same time I can't resist the drink that's put in front of me. The other one is obviously the political campaign one that I talked about with the MGM studios making propaganda film and that was a plot point that I felt like was the least interesting to me. It felt more or less like David Fincher was inserting his thoughts on the Hollywood landscape rather than telling a compelling narrative there and I know that might be controversial and a lot of people disagree with me but it felt like it was more David Fincher's comments on 30s Hollywood politics but I don't know I could be wrong there but that's kind of what I got from it and I didn't feel like it fit and the last plot point that it really juggles that I didn't really vibe with a whole lot and some people probably would have vibe with it a lot more with me is obviously with Amanda Seyfried. I thought that that plot point really didn't go much of anywhere. They did bond a whole lot but I just felt like that was another weak plot point that went a lot of places. Not only that but the movie will also have a lot of flashbacks that just cut on chop uh, just cut on top of the different plot points in the movie. It was a similar problem that I had obviously with the devil all the time that I talked about earlier where the devil all the time had all of these plot points that were just cutting on top of each other and that's kind of one of the issues with Mank. It'll just have a flashback pop up when they're in when they're in the middle of the present day scene with him writing Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, or we'll just have it where he's obviously talking about the political propaganda speech and we'll cut back to present day. It's just kind of a little bit messy in the way that it delivers its narrative, but at the same time, another thing too that's hard to get invested in is the other characters. I will not lie, outside of Mank and Amanda Seyfried, I cannot care any more about any of these other characters. Like, the MGM studio head, I was figuring was going to be more of like an evilish type character or we are going to get more out of him, but no, he just felt like a greedy corporate tool. So did his assistant in the movie, and I was just kind of like, I don't really like these two characters. They don't really feel like they have any character to them, and anybody else that pops up in the movie that's like a lawyer, an executive director, somebody that works for the studio, just feels like a character that's there to serve a purpose in one scene and then move on, and that was kind of a bummer to me. But anyways, I've talked enough about the negative of Mank. How would I put a bow on it? Because it just seems like I'm talking more negative than positive. Well, first off, I'm going to say I'm not giving the movie a bad score, but I'm just saying that I'm a little disappointed that David Fincher would make a movie that, you know, bored me. And I get it, this is for a certain audience, and maybe a certain people will like it more than me, but just, I guess for me, a guy that really likes this director, and obviously he's one of my favorite directors, it is a little, a little disappointing to watch a new movie from him after, what, his last one was Gone Girl in 2014, and to just sit here and kind of think, man, this is his return to form, I guess, but this isn't a movie that really entertain me. Maybe he just wanted to make a movie that appeals for that audience. He's like, I'm done appealing to most people with my movies. And hey, I kind of respect that, but this was certainly not for me. I think I'm going to give Mank a 7 out of 10. Could drop to a 6 later on if I watch it ever again, but just right now I'm going to leave it at a 7. But anyways, yeah, that'll conclude the podcast. And I guess here's an announcement for you guys real quick. This will be the last movie review podcast officially for the end of the year. That's right, this will be the last movie review podcast for 2020 for 2020 movies. Now, I know what a lot of you are going to be saying. Well, what about like Wonder Woman 84? What about Soul? What about The Sound of Metal? What about this movie that's also coming out? Don't worry, guys. If I watch those movies, you can watch. Uh, you can find my reviews for them on Letterboxd, obviously. And my username is obviously BaconPants13. The B and P are capitalized. And follow me there if you want those other reviews, obviously. But if those movies are good enough, you might hear my opinion on them when we get to the top 10 best and worst of the year list, which also... I want to talk about that podcast and when that's coming out. It looks like the 30th is going to be when that uh, podcast officially comes out. I'm going to obviously take some time to rewatch maybe some of the movies that I think I'm kind of on the fence on. Where do I want to put them? And at the same time, I've also got to really think about what movies stuck with me this year. Because again, it's not been a great year for film. Coronavirus really killed film. But I got to sit here and kind of think and evaluate things. And then starting next year, I am actually going to be taking applications for a co-host or for anybody that wants to come on and talk about a brand new movie that came out. Because uh, Brian is officially announced he will not be coming back. Uh, him and I kind of had a little bit of a discussion about it, and I was like, well, you don't have to guest star if you don't want. He's like, no, I'm just done with it completely. I <laughs> I don't want to do it anymore. I'm like, okay, fair enough. So I am taking applications for anybody that wants to come on and be the co-host, obviously. I don't care who it is, and it's perfectly fine. If you hit me up, if you think there's a movie we both can potentially talk about that we both have interest in, let me know. Also, another thing, too, is that there will be less consistent podcasts next year. I'm picking up a part-time job, juggling more school classes, so don't expect as many podcasts as you got this 
year. Maybe occasionally you'll get one at the end of the month or maybe the start of the month and the end of the month, but like it won't be as consistently with like all the movies that most people are seeing. Like it's just going to be the ones that I watch, mostly indie films, few blockbusters. But hey, if you're looking forward to reviews still and you like the podcast, hey, continue to listen. That's great. I'll go until the viewerships drop. But thank you guys for listening to this podcast. I will see you with the top 10 best and worst of the year list next time.